Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Dealmakers podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Biotechnology Analyst at Cowan. I'm very excited to be joined today by Jean-Francois Formula from Atlas Ventures and Otelio Stampaccia from Omega Funds in this episode called Building to Exit or Building to Go It Alone. We will discuss the internal view on building companies from the ground up and how decisions are made to sell a company or stand alone. So JF and Otello, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining. It's always great to see you. Great to be here. So I need to start by asking the obvious question. This is a biotech, uh, you know, dealmakers podcast. Pharma is sitting on a sizable cash position while their portfolios are aging and facing patent cliffs. We're dealing with questions about M&A volumes and why we're not seeing more deals literally all day long. Why aren't we seeing more deal activity? What's actually going on? And maybe JF, you start. Well, you know, M&A doesn't, is not triggered yet during in one day or one week. It's not like pharma all of a sudden say, okay, now it's time to do M&A. So you had a period of a very low cost of capital where I think there was less interest from management team and boards uh, to be doing both actually deals and M&A uh, because you had a massive amount of available capital. And, you know, I don't, I'm not surprised personally, I don't think you should expect them in it to turn on all of a sudden over a period of three weeks. Uh, you know, I think people are going to kind of uh, double check their shopping lists, they're going to be looking at uh, upcoming milestone, they're going to go, you know, it's a farm process is always following, uh, pharma is always following a process. So uh, I do believe that you're going to see an increase in activity, but it's not going to start overnight. That's not a surprise to me. So it's really a question of process and, and, and the big buyers can't react that quickly to weakening market conditions. Yeah, I don't, I look, I mean, I think pharma has a lot of qualities, but, but reacting quickly may not be one of them. Yeah, I, I really like that answer. Otello, you have a lot of, of input and, and view on how deal volume and deal sizes have been going on in the last 12 months. What are your thoughts? No, I do think there's been actually a pretty healthy level of activity, uh, all things considered. Uh, again, like JF, we mostly invest in, in biopharma. And as uh, you and I were talking earlier, I think there's been 16 transactions over a billion dollars in, in that space in 2021, which is a pretty large number, I believe, practically a record, uh, as well as a smaller number, uh, deal, much many more deals at a smaller valuation amount. So, so, you know, I don't think the, the activity has been depressed. Um, I do think there's a bit of projection here in terms of, you know, a lot of people saying, well, you know, market is now definitely in a bit of a distressed type of setting. So let's hope M&A steps up considerably. I, I still don't think the last year's activity has been, you know, very, very low. I do think it will step up because, uh, you know, in terms of your previous question to JF, I mean, these conversations are usually a dialogue where uh, a seller needs to, you know, potentially be a willing seller. Um, certainly when they're private companies and, and even in public positions, many of these companies are very close held ownership stakes. Uh, and the buyer has its own process, as Jeff said, and, and valuation is a huge part of the process. So I do think the last 
you know, few weeks in particular, though, you know, the XBI has been in the bear market, you know, pretty much since February of last year. But the last few weeks have been uh, a pretty meaningful leg down. So I do think it's right that a lot, at least from, from our own conversations, a number of farmers are doing this type of let's check our target list. So I would expect a meaningful amount of activity in the next few months. But again, the baseline wasn't so low to start with. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Are, are you expecting that more companies are going to be motivated to sell now that the market is down? Or are they still fairly optimistic that they can raise capital? Yeah, no, I think Jeff has a very insightful point earlier, which is a lot of this is cost of capital, right? So uh, when you are a private company, even, uh, or, or a public company, and there's capital available, at a relatively low cost of capital, then the calculation of, okay, you know, maybe I should think of selling the company becomes a little bit different. Whereas if you are a private company, public markets are, are difficult and potentially shut, which I don't foresee will last forever, but it is what it is right now. Uh, then, you know, dilution in terms of, I need to raise this amount of capital at what level of price should I raise that amount of capital becomes a very important consideration. And again, in, in one recent example in our portfolio, a Munich that we sold to Sanofi, there was actually the consideration, right? Some platforms, some companies, some product development pipelines require substantial amounts of capital. And sometimes a larger company is the place for the capital to be deployed. So, so again, that was an important factor, certainly in that deal, and it's probably a factor in many deals. Jeff, what's your view? I don't have much to add to uh, what Otelo said. I mean, you know, the... Uh... I think it's an interesting point to see if uh, we're going to see some divergence between the public uh, companies and the private companies. And I actually suspect we will. Um, I mean, I, I would suspect that the public companies, the public market will be affected potentially more than the private market, which is a bit paradoxical because, you know, historically we've all been, we've all grew up on the wisdom that you can always access more capital when you're public and then when you're private. Um, but for some reason, I, I feel that the impact on public companies, particularly the ones that are behind on their milestone or might already have mess, missed a milestone, is going much more pronounced than for the private companies, which essentially have still some of that expectation in front of them and are on on average are backed by people that have a lot of money right so you know certainly for you know omega atlas and a bunch of other people from flagship to trv to arch to others uh people have a lot of money on hand and if they have a belief in the in the vision and the plan of a company at the private stage they're going to continue to back it you know there might be more openness to deal making i'm not so sure that there will be instant openness to sell because you know i think we all believe that good companies will access the capital market so so anyway so you know i'm i i think it's a bit tricky because there will be different tiers in the public companies i think clearly there are public companies and uh, and that's a big difference in that cycle versus other cycles is that look at the average balance sheet right it's a very different ball game than it was certainly in 2000 which is night and day or then, you know, 2008 and, uh, and, and then 2020. Although in 2020, first of all, it was a very short correction and the balance sheet were already pretty healthy. What about, let's go back and forget the market sell-off in the last, you know, month, year to date. And let's go back even to 2021. I'm trying to get a sense. There's a lot of discussion. We're constantly debating this on Wall Street. 
are we, despite the healthy level of deals, are we not seeing more deals just given how much there is a needed pharma because of an arbitra arbitration on valuation or are there a, a Darth and a lack of willing sellers? Jeff, maybe to you first, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, you know, we, we've already rehashed the cost of capital point, which is, you know, obviously very important. And so I think was probably the driver of, um, you know, a lower amount of MMA, maybe to a teller's point in a band of market cap where, you know, people may not have noticed the trend may not be super obvious, but I think on average, people were probably less willing to sell for a given stage, right? I mean, you, you the, the challenge is that you have to stage adjust it. And so, you know, everybody looks at aggregate data, but but it's a bit tricky because it's really, it should be, it should be seen at the state adjusted. So it's a different discussion. We can have it, but it's kind of a longer discussion. Um, you know, the, uh, the other thing is that I think pharma also, uh, my perception is that they've changed a little bit their their uh, not so much the process, but their their view or their strategy about acquisition, where I think they're more willing to uh, to implement and execute on the acquisitions they've made in the past. They're not, you know, we had a period of market where every time you have a new shiny toy, everybody was trying to buy one quickly. Now, in a lot of discussion, you see pharma companies saying, oh, we already have that, right? We we bought the best company in that space and so on. And, and uh, it becomes a little bit more sticky, but the counterpoint is that the evolution of technology is so rapid that what was a very exciting acquisition, you know, 18 months ago may not actually be that competitive anymore. And so the question will be for the pharma team, you know, especially kind of the interesting tension between BD and R&D, which is, you know, R&D may say, oh, you know, look, we did that was the best, we made that acquisition. And, you know, BD, particularly the technical BD team are saying, well, things have evolved quite a bit. You may want to think twice, or, or, are you really sure that we're competitive? So I feel that there is a little bit of that process. So my point is that you can see a bit of an issue on both sides, where on the one hand, there is less incentive to sell on the seller side because of cost of capital, and of course it's changing. And then the pharma people are a little bit more deliberate in kind of jumping on the next thing. I, I'd be curious to know what uh, Otello thinks, but th that's, I, I think I'm, I've seen that a little bit. I don't disagree. I think there's a, there's a very insightful point there that is, you know, if you look at all these acquisitions or at least many of these acquisitions for both public and private companies on the public side, it's very clear that for all these deals, there was really one credible suitor. And, you know, I think at least on our data set, we had a couple of transactions just before Christmas, the same thing seems to apply to the private. So I think pharma has definitely done their internal homework and say, okay, here's what we need. Um, and some of that is also reflected in the speed of those transactions. I mean, many of these transactions now happen literally within, you know, weeks. Um, and, and that is also something that is a little bit, you know, jarring versus what pharma used to do, which is these incredibly lengthy processes. And it's because they know that this has to fit, right, into a already predetermined view of what they need. And once they get to the table, I believe those conversations seem to go a little bit faster. I mean, on average, there's always exceptions. But so I would agree with that. They, they definitely have a clearer view of what they need. And at the same time, as, as you said, there's the, the evolution of the underlying technologies is now so much faster that you know there's really almost plan obsolescence 
into some of the platforms they're buying for products that's that's a bit different um but those platforms after a couple of years get surpassed and and as you know jf we have a couple of companies in our collective joint portfolios that are exactly those next generations hello i know that you've been very much uh attuned and i know jf you too to the changing ftc environment right there's a much greater scrutiny now in biopharma deals what was previously a, a one-stage review and now we're potentially getting a second letter even when you're talking about early pipelines going to pharma that has a you know, massive portfolio, might not even be in the same area. Any thoughts on that? Is that really going to slow down deals or is that just going to take a little bit longer to get a deal done? Yeah, I think it's going to be more than just slowing down deals when it comes to the mega size transactions, right? I think those are actually going to be, again, obviously there's always exceptions, but those are almost impossible in my mind to get you know, affected uh, in, in the current environment. I think for smaller deals, uh, then it becomes more granular and that's gonna be really about uh, you know, the, the potential of the acquisition to provide market dominance in a therapeutic area. And we've seen examples of disposals of that, right? BMS had to sell a Tesla because of the uh, you know, presence in the TYK2 space, and there's, there's gonna be others. That said, again, broadly speaking, from a 30,000 feet view, I do think smaller deals, tuck-in acquisitions, you know, pipeline enhancements are much less likely, in my mind, to trigger FTC rejection. I think when it comes to the mega deals, uh, well, first of all, I really, think we should get past us this type of financial engineering kind of large M&As that really didn't do anything for innovation. So, so I think in a, in a sense, uh, and I know a lot of people complain about the FTC when they look about the M&A environment, for, for the type of companies that we back, that we like to build, I believe this is a macro positive, if anything. Yeah, I, look, I agree with that. We've done we've done a couple of deals since uh, the you know the uh, the new regime, so to speak, at the FTC, right? And uh, and uh, of course, everybody was a little bit concerned, given the new uh, head of the FTC and so on, and uh, regulatory and uh, you know and and policy background. But um, and so we we've seen the processing on those kind of uh, you know let's say small and mid cap. We you know we we. Uh, translate bio for example i mean we did get the letter you know it took longer but what was interesting is that you know from, even from the ftc staff you know you could see that the people who had been around were like hey you know don't worry this is kind of crazy and but you have to go through it you know we, we have to answer those questions that yeah don't make much sense but that's what it is and so I think you'll see mostly delays for, you know, the kind of a garden variety, small mid cap. I think for the large cap, I totally agree with Otello. That's very different because that's a, that's kind of a policy strategy and philosophies that is probably going to be different. Um, you know, I mean, I think there might be some deals that would still make sense in terms of, you know, where there is no true consolidation of one disease category where you, be, you know, where there is less competition uh based on the analysis but those deals that there's going to be a combination of process which is going to be much harder and stringency and also philosophy where some of those deals may end up not being approved so uh yeah it's you know it's going to have an impact i may add that might be a good thing for us right that might be a good thing for small and mid cap because you know if you can be driving the you know the top line or at least the the rate of of slowing growth if you cannot address it with mega merger, 
uh, then mm. you're going to have to look at you know promoting growth in other ways. So I you know too early to tell, but I think it's going to be interesting. Right. I mean, that there's a you know famous saying in uh, in 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 BD, which I never understood until I left Wall Street and became an operator. On Wall Street, there's a there's a sense that everybody's going to buy who they want to, but M&A is not a marriage. You sometimes buy who you can and not who you want to. There's an element of practicality. I want to maybe shift over a little bit and talk a little bit about you've both been around for a long time. You've invested in late stage, early stage. Increasingly, you're both doing a lot of early stage company building exercises. When you're investing early stage, how do you decide whether you're going to build to exit or you're going to build to go it alone? Maybe JF, maybe we'll start with you on that one. Yeah, so it's it's not how it works, right? <laughs> you, you know, at all. Uh, you know, and and, uh, and I know it's a, a bit of a you know motherhood and apple pie. Said you know, company or boards are not sold. Okay, but but it's actually fundamentally true. Uh, look, we, our strategy at the early stage. I mean, obviously, we're 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 essentially primarily early stage, whereas you know, Otello is doing both, right? Um, at the early stage side, it's uh, you know stage. It, it's science. It's entirely science driven. So, you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's biology, i.e., it's a really attractive target or mechanism that we'd like to drug, and we're going, we're willing to take the risk of of drugability, uh, and or whether it's a new modality and it's a, it's a big platform build. Uh, we're totally agnostic. You know, for us, it's really the attractiveness and the quality of the science, and also. The what we call translatability, which is you know the the likelihood that you can convert that science into a program that is relevant, and and as a shot from a regulatory standpoint, right? So obviously you know I mean it's a proverbial TPP, right? I mean if you even if you're an early stage investor, you've got to be thinking about at least some rough construct of TPP, whether it's actually a modality or it's a new target, and uh, and and then the rest happens. You know, it's, so the, the the exception to that is that, and we've done a couple of those deals, right? Remember, we we did Arteus with Eli Lilly on the CGRP class. We actually are the one who generated the first proof of uh, concept of data uh, with Mgality, uh, and then Lilly bought it back. So that was a clear example of build to buy. But I'd like to point out that those were very different capital market, where we were looking for very very capital efficient play because. You know the cost of capital was much higher, and furthermore, or the size of our fund, or because we were still a tech and biotech fund, our biotech allocation was much smaller. So you had a double whammy. Not only the cost of capital was higher, but we had a smaller allocation as an investor. So we were looking for transactions that were very capital efficient and very focused, and and we still did the platform, but but we had to to limit the number of things we were doing in that setup, right? Uh, so I, I think I'm done, which is, you know, yeah, we don't, we, we are not thinking about, oh, yeah, this one is going to be great to kind of go public and, and this one is going to be great to sell. Obviously, we're aware of the difference of probability based on, let's say, single asset and platform, but we are not deciding the day we're funding it that one will go the one way and the other will go another way. No, yeah, I don't have much to add, perhaps to, to put this in a slightly more, if you will, prescriptive framework. I think it's an interaction between, as Jeff said, the cost of capital, which is driven by both fund sizes and, and public market conditions and, and you know just general funding environment. That's one factor. 
Uh, and then the obvious difference between single asset, which have a clear shot on goal in the clinic in a very well-defined indication. Uh, we love those, by the way. I mean, but they, they don't come around every day versus the broad platform. We still need to figure out which mouse trap will work better here, which require usually some exploration of the biology and some buildup. And then the rest is just in between, right? These are the, the broad goalposts but obviously there's a lot of room in the middle in terms of a spectrum. Um, I do think it's important to, to remember what, what Jeff mentioned earlier, which is there's a lot of capital still available in the private markets. It was a very insightful observation about the potential kind of flip of the transactability on private versus public. And actually, if you take just two random examples of the two largest you know, preclinical M&As to date, which are Vividian and Immunix, uh, both companies were filing to go public right and and there was a very motivated buyer who came out of the the woodwork and said okay you know uh let's do this before you go public because uh, you know once you're public who knows right what your valuation would be um i'm not entirely sure the dynamic will reproduce itself in the current you know exacting right now environment uh, but there was an interesting dynamic and i have to say that one of the calculations from the board of munich without revealing too much confidential information was okay you're gonna need x hundred million to build this company through clinical proof of concept, right? At which stage you do another leg up in the value uh, versus the offer on the table. And, and you know, obviously the offer on the table won. And so what exactly happens at the board level and when it, the, 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 does the decision to sell really get crystallized? Is there one moment or is it usually a, a flurry of thinking and strategic evaluation that leads to a sale? Yeah, no, listen, there's a there's a continuum there as well. Uh, I mean, obviously, boards are, are multi-component entities with, you know, uh, in some cases, financial investors like ourselves, uh, plus independent board members and obviously management. So management obviously has a big say in this. Uh, I mean, I got to tell you, that was actually one of the two transactions that we announced, uh, not, not a Munich, the other one, that we announced before Christmas. I was actually very happy to continue investing in the company, but but management, you know, for them was a big deal. It was a great multiple for us as well. But, you know, I still felt that there was a, a bigger prize at the end of the clinical pathway. So management has a role. Uh, I think the rest of the board has a, you know, also a very important role, obviously, uh, in terms of decision. I mean, it's very hard to push management really hard to sell a business if you don't want to, right? First of all, we are not the type of investors. Um, I mean, when it comes to the financial investors, the motivations are fairly simple. Uh, I mean, I, I don't claim to, to say that we are complex creatures. Uh, it's really about, okay, you know, again, we're gonna have to put X amount of money into this company to get to the next stage, which is usually a clinical endpoints. What's the potential risk associated with that? What are the capital market conditions? Where are our funds, right? What, what point of life are we in our funds? Is this now year 10 or year two? Uh, and that changes the, quite dramatically, the calculus. Uh, and then it's about, okay, let's weigh the pros and cons. Now, some transactions have, have very complex structures. We shouldn't forget that, right? Earnouts, milestones, and so on. And, and you know, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but we did a study a while back on how many of these milestones get paid eventually by pharma. And, and I have to say the probability of full payment of milestones is a little bit tricky. So you gotta, you gotta really, calculate that into your deal structure. But again, I don't think these are super complex discussions. It's really once you have an offer on the table, 
it's fairly clear if it's viable or not for the shareholders, which ultimately should, you know, have a big say in this. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add. I would say, I mean, you know, the question of the board is an interesting one, and it could be, it could be a much longer discussion in terms of the different type of boards. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're 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 better off avoiding, you know, some, uh, you know, being too candid. But uh, maybe I, I can't resist, and maybe I'll touch on a couple of those points. But the the um, in our case, particularly for private companies, uh, you know, and I suspect it's the same for Otello and Omega, because 90% of the time we are, we've been the lead investor in the last round, or if not all the rounds, uh, which, you know, we're typically company co-founders. So obviously we, on the, at the private stage, we, we tend to play, uh, you know, a pretty important role on the board. But at the same time, we do believe in governance. So we don't believe in you know, one firm boards because that's not good governance. So we tend to syndicate with like-minded people, uh, certainly you know, including Omega and, and a few others. And, and that result into what I call a pretty healthy and very seamless board dynamic where you know, we look at an offer and everybody comes more or less to the same point very quickly, which is it does make sense under a certain number of parameters or it does not make sense uh, and or is unlikely to result into a transaction. Uh, when you go to public companies, you have a lot of different type of boards, right? You, you, you know, so the two broad category would be dysfunctional boards and, and mostly functional boards. Uh, the dysfunctional boards, then you can't, you know, the question of how does the board handle that? I can't help you. It's dysfunctional. It's like, you know, God help them. Uh, you know, the functional board, typically the management team to Otello's point will probably have an important role for a very simple reason is that if you have a functional board and you have a management team in place, you would assume that that's the right management team uh, if the board is good and functional. And so, you know, so it's a, it's kind of a simple decision tree and logic. And, and then the you know, deals will fall in different category. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, on some board, I'm sure it's a very interesting process, uh, you know, to, to go through that analysis, uh, some of which is a waste of time because in a private company, you'd know very quickly if, it's, if it makes sense or not. JF, what are the biggest challenges now to new company formation? Is it trying to hire people? Is it finding technology? Is it bidding for technology and, and spinning it out out of an academic institution? So it's very simple. The, 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 the most scarce resource in ta is talent. Uh, and I would say beyond talent, because that's kind of an obvious statement, uh, it's talent that you, where there is a relationship, where there is kind of a, uh, an ability to be up and running very quickly because you have worked with the people both ways or you're very close to people who work with them, which is where syndication is very important, right? Uh, so again, whether it's with, you know, Otello and his team and other uh, early stage investor, you know, typically we, we are going to have overlapping network, but not totally overlapping network. And together, when we do a search, it is very likely that we can reach pretty much anyone in the marketplace. It doesn't mean that we win, right? Because you've got competing syndicate with also very good investor and and then that's the reality is that relationship is what's going to make the difference your ability to actually to pick the right talent and to get people to move is going to be based on longitudinal relationship and it's not going to be based on the transactional discussion where you're coming to the table saying oh you know we're x and xyz venture we have a lot of money 
Who cares? Everybody has money, right? At least all the good firm. Uh, you know, oh, we have a lot of expertise and we have a great track record. Yes, this is great. It's required, but it's not sufficient because there are a lot of other people who have a good great track record. And, you know, so the next step is, well, what is the quality of the company, which would be a pretty important one. So the quality of what you invest in will make a difference. But here again, it's not entirely differentiating because, you know, the other smart investors are investing in good companies. So what's going to make the difference in the end? The difference is going to be, do I feel as a, as a human being that that's going to be a good place, that I like the science, I like the people, I like the board and the investor philosophy, and that's the one I'm going to do. And, and that's where, I, and I'd be very curious to hear her tell on that, but that's where most, I wouldn't call it competition, but that's where most of the challenge and the scarce, you know, the, the, the special source is, is at that level. Oh, I mean, listen, 100% in agreement, uh, that is the scarcest resource, talent. Uh, I completely agree with JF that a lot of the, you know, winning factors here are no longer relevant to capital. And I mean, yes, capital is always important, of course, but it's really about the positioning of the firms themselves. I think in terms of the technological progresses, they're being absolutely mind-boggling over the last, you know, whatever decade. Um, and and what I think has also become better in terms of our own firm's, you know, software, if you will, is is then identifying more senior appropriate people for running these companies. But the the other firms have also done that as well, and and that kind of competition for talent is absolutely insane, particularly in clusters like Boston which again, for our kind of target markets, which is mostly biopharma, you know, R&D plays, uh, it's crazy. And you see this in the statistics. I believe in 2021, there've been over 12 billion, I think that's about right, dollars of, you know, new biopharma investments in, in the Boston area. That, that's a, a huge figure. And I think it's bigger than the entire rest of the US combined. Now, okay, that's a single year. So let's not take it as a, as a huge parameter, but that, that is still a meaningful and the thing about Boston is that it is an incredibly connected ecosystem. So again, this goes to strengthen, once again, the point that Jeff made, which is, okay, it's very important our firms, our way of behaving with these individuals is positioned in the market. So maybe last question, and we'll do it quickly. The next five years, how would venture change, JF, in 30 seconds? Um, so let me just one minute on the previous point. So I, we were saying money is not the differentiator, but it's, it le it's led to an interesting trend, which is as you could some of comp some firms have actually pushed the envelope and done super mega round. In some ways, you could look at it as an attempt to differentiate along that line. The question is, is it actually a positive selection or an adverse selection phenomenon in terms of you know, essentially taking almost entirely the financial risk out of the equation. I see the merit on the one hand, I also see some pitfall on the other hand. Uh, because at the end of the day, that business is entirely predicated on disciplined allocation of capital. So longer discussion, but I wanted to point that out because some people who listen to the podcast will say, well, it's actually not true because I can put 200 million in the company and those guys can only put 100. Okay. I mean, that's, it's an interesting philosophical discussion to see, to know if it's a true differentiator. So we can put that on the side, maybe another podcast with other people, but uh, okay, the next five years, um, you know, I, I actually don't see a lot of changes in our segment of the market in the next five years. The, the company creation segment of the market has been pretty inelastic for, you know, a number of reasons that goes back to the previous point, which is 
you know, you have a limited amount. Of, the, the talent pool has grown, right? But the talent pool, in my opinion, is probably not growing as fast as the technology pool because we didn't address your technology point last time. You know, there is all, almost unlimited supply of new biology and new and new technology. I.e., by that I mean modality and another tool, right? And and so you can almost iterate endlessly on innovation, right? You you and and the question is how much innovation is enough? You don't want to be just incremental, even though people have done that. You know, everybody have jumped on some kind of platform. I would agree, right? I would argue right now that in some segment of gene editing. Uh, you know, you, you see people coming in with a you know different nuclease or slightly different delivery system, but it's kind of incremental, and they're piling up in the same indication. You know, SQL, SQL cell would be a case in point. I mean, you know, how many more companies do you need? You know, going after SQL cell with technologies that are not clearly differentiated. So, so I think maybe one change. I said not much, and our model fundamentally won't, won't change. We're starting companies based on great science, trying to get great people. Pretty simple. You know, it's not that obvious to, to do, but you know, you can do it. The the one thing maybe that my uh, that my challenge is that the criteria for uh, defining what's incremental and what's actually really next gen, I think, are going to evolve, and 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 they will probably include uh, incorporating the thinking about indication and biology early on, even in platform companies. Which is, by the way, great news for our industry and our business. I, I should say for our industry and medicine, because it means that more and more, even for new modality, we're going to tend to very quickly try to see where you can differentiate along indication. So that would be the one thing in my, and I might be missing something, but that's the one I can think about right now. Absolutely. Otello, what about you? Yeah, and you know. I need to just for the sake of the interest level in the post uh, podcast try to disagree with JF, right? So I don't disagree. The fundamental of our business, and again at the company creation early stage part of the spectrum, are unlikely to change dramatically in the next five years. However, and some of this actually follows from some of the points that Jeff just made. Just made is the the need to really figure out how to scale our businesses. And I don't mean scale in terms of, you know, let's raise this billion, multi, whatever billion dollar funds, but by really having a fundamental understanding early on before we start these companies of exactly what JF said, which is what is really the full breadth of these competitive landscapes uh, and, and what are the pitfalls in clinical development strategy. I mean, that is something that is extremely hard to do uh, even for, you know, I would say large companies. I mean, you just saw today that Regeneron and Sanofi are to withdraw Liptaio for second line, line ovarian cancer. Notwithstanding what I thought were phenomenal, you know, clinical data. And it's just because the, the moment they submitted data to the FDA was just after, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Keytruda and Chemo became first line. So, I mean, that stuff needs to be predicted years in advance, right? To, to make sure you, you, you still have a viable product. Now, that's gonna be impossible to get right 100% of the time, but I think it's gonna be incredibly important for firms like ours to incorporate some of their thinking. Uh, and I have to say from, from you know, the little world of us, uh, Omega, I think it's, it's something we are incredibly concerned about. How do we build those algorithms, if you will, within our decision-making process? That is not something that is easy to do 
without scaling the organizations in a very fundamental level. Now, the other issue, to be honest, is that we are just about entering what I think is a new, you know, perhaps age is a big word, but a new timeline within a, a venture in our space. I mean, it used to be that you could do a phenomenal job, you know, with somebody that looked like JF and perhaps to a certain extent me and build a very successful firm around that. I do think five years from now, that's going to be very, very tricky because it's impossible to clone the phenotype of these investors who have, you know, the connectivity, the understanding of the science, and in some cases of the clinical development uh, at a scale that allows you to be truly agnostic, right? And I think having too narrow of an investment focus doesn't work well for our firms either. So, so I think we might start shifting for perhaps more of a, you know, let's say, you know, one individual soup to nuts approach to investing to a more teamwork oriented. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that happens, but I do see it happening. We're trying to really, really hard to make it happen within our firm, but it's, it's an interesting transition. Now, the experiment still hasn't run its course, so we'll see. Sorry, Yaron. Yeah, so let me push back or, or rather bring up the question. In the last five years, we've been in the most hospitable public markets ever, which allow you to scale your investment quickly, get a quick return. It also created this incentive to iterate and incrementally innovate. And, and there's, there's way too much therapeutic density on certain targets, which is an issue, which we then face and inherit on my side of the world, right? On the public <laughs> side. But when you think about the capital markets getting potentially more challenging, and let's see what really happens from now onwards, how does that change your investment horizon and how much capital you can deploy as well before you really get to an inflection point? I mean, look, that's kind of a that 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 kind of equation or algorithm has been has been uh, demonstrated for decades, right? It's like holding periods. The holding period in the asset class you know, tends to vary with the, with the capital market and the cost of capital, right? So, I mean, if you look at the NBCA data, right? You, you know, for, for years and years, the uh, average holding period, you know, actually both in tech and biotech, although I, I don't follow tech as much these days, but uh, it was, you know, let's say seven to, to 10 years. And, and the average time to IPO was probably also seven to 10 years in some cycles. And then in the past uh, five years, you know, it literally shrunk in by half, at least in our portfolio. I think at the, the peak or at the bottom, we were probably at 3.5 years average holding period, which is why you saw that velocity of funds and capital and, and deals, right? To your point. Uh, so you should, you would expect that in a market that is less bullish or maybe more steady state, or maybe even in, in a bearish market, uh, you know, holding periods are going to go back up. You know, is it a bad thing? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have an impact on the multiple. Obviously, it has an impact on the internal rate of return, which to a certain extent, the LPs are also taking into consideration. But the internal rate of return tends to move as an index. It's very rare for someone to be able to distinguish themselves in the same cycle, because then it tells you they're doing something fundamentally different about the investment strategy. It might be a good or bad thing. I would say that typically the late stage investors are the one who are going to try to focus on internal rate of return in a market that is at steady state because that's a way to differentiate. Uh, I, I would argue that as early stage investor, we should continue to focus on multiple uh, because you know you all know the famous saying, right? You don't eat IRR, right? And uh, you eat multiple. So you know I, we want to be conscious of both, but that, that would be my answer to uh, to the question. I don't. 
I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a lag function between a period of public market turmoil and a fundamental reset of investment strategies in terms of capital allocated and so on. And, and the lag function works both ways, works uh, on the positive feedback loop going up and on the negative feedback loop coming down, right? So I think, uh, again, 2021 and 2020, I believe there were almost 100 companies public going public every year. Uh, and, and now many of those are, you know, colossally underwater. So I think there's still a, a lot of capital available on the private side. I, I haven't seen fund sizes shrink. The moment you start seeing fund sizes shrink, which in my mind will only happen with a meaningfully prolonged downturn in the public markets, I think that to me would be a very clear sign that that you know we need to shift back to very very conservative ways of investing. But again, as JF has said, there's 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 a lot of ways of making money, even being capital efficient. So I don't see that necessarily as a challenge. I do think, and JF is also right there, that that's more of a challenge for what I would call the kind of latest stage, more opportunistic mezzanine type of investors, of which we have seen many uh, new emerge over the last couple of years. Uh, I, I still don't think this, and you know, I hope to be not to be wrong. I still don't think this market is going to be like a, a ridiculously low bear market for, for a very prolonged period of time. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm saying this. One is that there's still meaningful inflows into healthcare funds. Now, those are going mostly to the large caps because they're seen as a more defensive heaven, uh, but it still inflows. And the other one is that, you know, I don't think this is a fundamental downturn driven by fundamental reasons. I think it's driven by the fact there's a lot of ETFs that are unwinding. So, you know, you can thank Kathy Wood, I guess. Um, but I don't think it would be, now, who knows, but I don't think it would last for a very, very long period of time. Let's move into the lightning round, my favorite part of the podcast, something a little bit more personal. Um, Otello, I'm going to start with you. Tell us one thing about you that no one knows. I'm an excellent cook. Well, yeah, a lot of people know. A lot of people know that. <laughs> a lot of people know that. Okay, so something else then. I used to teach merengue when I was doing my PhD to pay for it. All right, so I, I didn't know that. So that's great. That's a good one. Were there you any go. good? Well, if I used to teach it, I kind of suppose I'm kind of decent at it. Yes. JF, what about you? Okay, one thing that um, most people don't know, I think some of my partners know, but you probably have forgotten. But when I was in, uh, I guess, pre-med, uh, just, just starting uh, college, I, uh, I was signed as a singer in a pop group in, in Paris. And, uh, and you know, we, uh, we actually did the one fake single that was released in Germany and uh, didn't go very far and that was it. And, uh, but, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of fun. I mean, you know, I, I was like, I don't know, tw you know, 20 years old or something, but uh, it's all good. Yeah, I gotta find yeah. this now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I, dedicate my I life to it. The title of the single was "Oh Denise," so which goes to tell you how profound, you know, that was. But and and I, that's all I remember. And uh, you know, anyway, it's, I I know this man for over 25 years, and I never heard about this. So this is, was very useful. Thank you, Yaron. <laughs> awesome. Um, what made you successful in your career in your non-singing career, JF? 
Well, I mean, look, it's a, it's a very uh, success in my opinion is a, is very multifactorial. I think, you know, some luck is always a factor and I am not saying that to kind of, you know, can discount, you know, what, uh, what whatever achievement I, I may have made. Uh, you know, I would say, you know, I, I, I certainly don't think I'm the smartest person in the business. There are a lot of super bright people in the business. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I would say maybe the differentiating factor for me has been relationship. I mean, just the ability to, uh, uh, you know, to have uh, good and lasting relationships that would be a differentiator. It's not the only factor, but, you know, many factors, we all have them, right? So we're all kind of reasonably bright. We all work reasonably hard. Uh, we just had, we all had reasonable amount of luck. Uh, and, you know, we, we all went to reasonably good school. So, you know, just like we were talking about differentiator, right, for, for funds or for a strategy. Uh, so then you look at what are people like maybe differentiating element. I mean, in my case, it's probably, you know, kind of a relationship. Otello, what about you? Yeah, no, it's hard to disagree with the fact that, you know, there's a lot of common factors because in, in terms of people who've been successful in our industry, in terms of my personal case, yeah, relationships are important for me. I mean, I'm Southern Italian, so that's kind of genetics. I, I speak a few languages, so I think that's helped me build, you know, closer personal relationships with a few people. Uh, notwithstanding, you know, my Southern Italian origin, I'm actually incredibly disciplined as a person, and I believe in this kind of compounding capacity of accumulating information and at some stage I was actually learning how to memorize things better and that served me well for all my life my wife is still shocked when I remember stuff that happens 20 30 years ago uh, and then you know I'm extremely intellectually curious and that's the thing that I think is important for many people in our business is I think there's a fundamental drive in what we do which is you know success not defined as capital but defined or capital creation or accumulation if you will but but really defined as understanding things better, working with great people. And I think when I see people who have that similar intellectual curiosity, Jeff absolutely being one of them, it's just a pleasure to work with these individuals. And I think having being one, being one of those, I think it helps also with the relationship side because you know, fundamentally senior people in our industry and in our business are yes, bright, you know, accomplished, but I also want to really work and interact and have personal relationships with people who are who know stuff and can challenge them and help them grow as individuals. And I think they have this kind of silly capacity of retaining information. Uh, and I think that's really helped me build this, this great group of friends in our industry. And I really consider them friends. They're not just work relationship. So I guess multifactorial, as Jeff said, but you know, a couple of different nuances for each one of us, I think. Well, terrific. Uh, Otello and Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. It was uh, entertaining, illuminating, and unbelievably insightful as usual. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.